Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 168. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, riding again with the podcast, the mad professor, Maliki Friedman. Maliki, how are you doing? Good, good. I'm doing good. How are you? Not bad. I got to ask, why are you the mad professor? It's a great nickname. I'm just curious. Man, so everybody was calling me, like, so I kept getting, like, wizard, and I kept getting all that stuff, and I'm like, you already got the mad wizard and stuff, but you already got Ryan Hall. And of course I don't think anybody can be more, be more wizardry than, than <laughs> Ryan Hall. So it's like, I don't, I don't even want to go to, go to bat. It's funny, man. All my, my entire life, anytime I got a nickname, it was somebody else's nickname when it was like Ryan, Randy Couture was the natural and people started being like, Oh man, he's a natural. Here, I'll go to this and go to that. Oh, natural, you know, the natural. And all of a sudden I'm like, how can I be the natural when Randy Couture is, is like the, the UFC champion. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, we're going to have to think of something else. So it just kind of came down to like the whole in the lab type stuff, you know, and literally being probably not having my all my faculties, you know, I'm, I'm all over the place. <laughs> well, creativity requires a degree of disconnection with the norm, right? It's, it's really, really hard to be truly creative if you think like everybody else. Yeah, I, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> There's a lot of people doing a lot of intelligent things and creating things and they they seem very organized i couldn't tell you where my keys are or i couldn't tell you what folder i have what in that i'm looking at or, or studying i'm a complete mess but in that mess sometimes i remember stuff and i i'm able to play with it i'm able to to make it useful for somebody else well, you know, this is a great segue, actually, because if there was ever an episode to have the mad professor of jujitsu on, it would be this one. Something that I was requested to talk to you about by a member of our community, and I thought it would be an awesome topic, is the way that you do workshopping. So particularly, I guess the question here is, what goes on in the lab? There's a lot of people who talk about jujitsu like a lab as opposed to a classroom or a dojo. And I much prefer this idea of looking at things like a lab for a variety of reasons that anyone who's ever listened to an episode of BJJ Mental Models already knows. I think it's just a great way to conceptually look at jujitsu. And what that means, though, is that we're spending a lot of time doing I don't want to say research. I mean, it's not like we're doing like double blind peer reviewed stuff, but there's a lot of experimentation that goes on on the mats. And I would say that one of the crazy gnarly things about jujitsu is just the rapid explosive growth of new ideas that just seem to come out on the regular. Jujitsu is a weird sport uh, because if you take 
like a year off, which I've done before. You come back and everything is different. There's new stuff happening. I mean, I kind of just stepped away from the scene for like a month. And now people are talking about like Choi bars and stuff. I don't know what that is. I mean, you can't can't turn your back for a second without someone inventing a new thing. But that's one of the amazing things about this sport. And I would say that for anyone who wants to be in this for the long game, yeah, you want to, of course, study what other people are doing and you want to try to ride the trends to some extent. But you also need to be able to innovate and research and experiment on your own. And the way that you engage on the mats is how you do that. So with that said, I'd love to give you some space to do the intro here. Tell me about workshopping and what this means to you. I'd love to dig into the process. Yeah, so if if I'm thinking about in a laboratory type setting and I'm thinking, okay, I have to, to look at a problem or I have to look at something, maybe it's not even a problem, maybe I found a solution to something or something that seems to, where I'm always winding up in a position or I'm always winding up in a submission where it fails somewhere. And usually that comes from my live roles or it comes from watching one of my students and I'm like, like something just sparks something and I'm like, okay, there's something there. Now let me see that again. There's some, okay, there's something there. And I just repetitively bang it into my brain that that's something I want to work on. And then kind of looking at the position and, you know, just like you said, you can't do double blind surveys. You can't do, you know, you come up with basically a concept of what you believe is there and then you have to test it. And, and that's the hardest part is when you're testing something out, when you're looking at something, is not getting overwhelmed. And that can, that can be really easily happen because you can like, let's say like, oh, I think something's there and you like, let's say the Heisengard when I, I made the Heisengard and I was hitting one or two things from there, but I wasn't really hitting anything else. And I, I would try to make it move. I would try to, to sweep somebody from there and I hit a wall maybe five or six times and during those those hitting those walls, I really wanted to stop because at some point your jiu-jitsu feels gross. You know, like it just didn't feel good. There wasn't anything good about that. You you want to go, oh, forget it. You know, like let's not even look at that anymore. You know, I'm sure everybody who's who's tried a new move, right, and tried to remember what the new move is has made a mess of it and then just been like, ah, maybe next time. And then next time never comes back, really. And then on the flip side, you also need, and this is really hard, you need somebody who is as invested as you are in figuring it out. Because if you just keep failing and hitting the wall, they're sitting there and they're like, well, that's great and all, man, but it doesn't seem like it's working out for you. Can I go train now? And, and that kind of like, you know, like holodeck experience we don't have yet we don't have like where we go into like this holodeck or the like the x-men simulator and you just have like somebody where you can just drill on non-stop until you till you figure things out so i would say a lot of my my, my workshopping of where i i come up with stuff is through visualization a great deal and that's stuff that i've had to really like hammer into my brain because i've had a ton of injuries and so I've watched a ton of tape. I've watched a ton of this. And you almost have to, like, when you're watching tape, you have to visualize and and think how it feels to move into these positions. And I know, like, so there's a, probably a lot of jiu-jitsu fans out here, that, and they know, and they're watching jiu-jitsu, and their body's kind of doing jiu-jitsu with the thing they're watching. And, and that's because we're so dialed in that, like, we understand what the feel, like, we you see it, and you also understand the feeling of it. Right. And so in my, when I'm doing 
my visualization or if I'm if I'm trying to find something through a through a new lens or, or trying to to understand a position and, and add something to it that's going to work for me. A lot of it is is me like blanked out thinking about okay, I got lapel in my hand, I got his his pants in my hand. Can, what what do I have Heisengardish from here? Where can I go? And sometimes when it gets put on the mat, it's a big mess. And sometimes when I sometimes I catch something, and sometimes it wasn't the thing I was thinking about. It just kind of falls in. But I think pushing your your mind to try to find something that's there, pushing your brain to, to try to exit limitations that you believe are, exist, and to try to really. And here's the coolest stuff, and I, and I think that and it's hard for me because. I put out so much content and a lot of that content is stuff that people haven't ever put out is that you don't always have to have a groundbreaking thing. It doesn't always need to be like, it doesn't have to be the Heisengard. It doesn't have to be this new entry into a guard that nobody's ever seen before. It can be something as different as I like this grip. This grip is way different than the grips that I have been using. And I'm and I'm having way more success with this grip, you know, or or understanding a, a position a little more deeply, like chair sit or the position prior to chair sit, where your chest should go on the opponent's scapula, you know, like your chest should fill in here, and this is exactly how it should feel like, and that's one of the big things that I think a lot of new guys don't understand is that at all times my jujitsu has changed it's gone from one recognizable position and thing like i believe i believe this until i either try something else or something kind of pops into my brain where i see that position somewhere else and i can now transfer it over into a new position i'm like okay and this is something like super silly but uh you know and i almost hate to acknowledge of how little i knew about this one position which was just controlling the back and instead of grabbing my opponent's wrist, right, grabbing at the palm and pulling the pinky up. Yep. And that's something that maybe in the last uh, – I was taught maybe in the last three years and it, it was really like one of those positions where I was like, I can't be that stupid. You know, I can't, I, I can't be – you know, like like I know I know a lot of jiu-jitsu, but I hadn't applied that that one technique to my game and it's changed other things in my game. It's changed the way I chair sit. It's changed the way I attack the back. It's changed the way that I attack most things, like understanding that that little curl of, of pulling the fingers, not the fingers, but the palm back, rather than controlling at the hand or, or controlling at the wrist. And I really think that when, I, when I'm talking about workshopping or I'm getting involved into something that I haven't tried before, it's about not getting down on myself because I'm going to fail. Like I know I'm going to hit a wall and I know that, trust me, you have Keenan Cornelius. He did not create the, the worm guard encyclopedia in one day. You know, he just didn't do it. It just doesn't stuff just doesn't magically happen like that. And so you have to go, okay, he had a good concept and he probably sat there and put legs through this lapel, through that lapel, through this lapel. He probably tied his gi to the other guy's gi. You know, like he's he's put so much effort and work into that. 
system that he now has a, a great amount of new ideas to share. So yeah, I think it, it really it really starts with me either wanting to make the position greater than it is for myself, or it's me seeing a position that may be new or seeing a position that somebody else does and seeing if I can apply it to something similar in my game, not exactly the way that they're doing it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there that I philosophically agree with. And I think the big thing you're bringing up here, which is super important, is this acknowledgement that even if you're a so-called expert at jiu-jitsu, you've got the black belt, you've been doing this for a dozen plus years, you still don't know everything. And not only do you not know everything, but you will constantly be just shocked at the things you discover that you probably think you should have learned a long time ago. There are details that to this day I learn that I'm shocked it took me until black belt to learn. There's a lot of things that white belts know that I don't know. A lot of little micro details just because maybe they had an instructor that taught them that and I just never did. Or maybe they saw some instructional with some great ideas that I just never saw. There are so many ideas in jujitsu that no matter how much you study it, you can simply never know everything about this art. You just can't. And you're always, even at the black belt level, you're going to be consistently discovering things that not only did you not know before, but that really they feel like silly white belt details that you should have learned a long time ago. And that's one of the things where I think, especially as you get more senior in jujitsu, you kind of develop a degree of imposter syndrome because you keep feeling like I should know this or I should be doing better than this. How come I'm not winning more? I'm a black belt. How, how come all all of these blue belts know stuff that I don't and developing that beginner's mind where you can actually just admit to yourself that you don't know everything and that's okay to not know everything. First of all, that's a massive improvement to your mental health once you accept that, but also it opens up the door to research and development of new ideas because you can't study and learn and expand your knowledge if your ego is telling you that you should know everything out of the gate. The first thing you have to do is come to terms with the fact that you don't know everything and that's normal and that's okay. And then from there, you can take the steps to actually start developing and innovating. And I also love the point you brought up about how, you know, new knowledge doesn't have to be totally breakthrough. Not every major change to jujitsu is going to be some new guard that has never been seen before. A lot of the time, it's just going to be a, a tiny micro detail here or there that maybe you thought of that other people hadn't thought of before. Or maybe other people had thought of it, but it's just not widespread enough knowledge that it, it's shared out there to the general populace. And maybe part of your contribution can be not necessarily being the, the first person to discover it, but maybe you can be the first person to popularize it. And that is just as valuable as the knowledge discovery in itself. So this is where I think we can start to say that jujitsu gets into the land of workshopping. People always say having a black belt is like having a PhD. It's absolutely not. They're two totally different things. But one of the things that you can do once you get to a more advanced level much like you would with a PhD, is you can start looking for unique contributions back to the sport, where you start trying to develop new pieces of knowledge that no one else has done before. And like you said, that is a very different practice from the way that you would normally just roll in and train in class, right? You have to have a very deliberate 
structure for developing new ideas versus just getting your mat time in. They're totally different things. And not everyone is suited to do that research. And that's okay. A lot of people, they're just there to learn and and stand on the shoulders of giants. And that's great. But if you are interested in actually developing and turning your class into a lab, then the way that you teach and the way that you engage has to be completely different from the traditional way that people teach BJJ. Yeah, I, I wholly agree. I mean, sometimes I, I wonder. So I've changed my approach to teaching a few different times. Where I used to do the do the seminar esque master class version of stuff, and I realized it didn't matter how much I told them, they were not going to get most of it. So they would get the general concept, but they wouldn't understand. Well, I need this. Well, you need to you need to be on your elbow, or well, well this is you know like your wrist is going to be strong. Like there's like so many structural things in our body that weaken us that, that are stronger at different angles. You know, like there's, there's something that I do from spider web that I'll never change, which is basically passing the hand that I'm arm barring to the arm that I'm holding the leg with. And I'll do it with like, kind of like a cuff over with my wrist. This is probably very difficult to, to imagine, but it's the strongest it's the strongest structure I've ever had to get an arm bar. You know, it's one of those things that I'm like, okay, so when I'm teaching my students, usually I teach them the first amount without any details, like without like without these major, major details. And then I wait for the first, hey, what if? And then I'm like, okay, good. Now you now I know that you're actually drilling this. And and some of my usually it's a higher belt, sometimes it's a white belt. What if this happens? I'm like, good. You found out that there's a hole there. Yes, there wasn't. So, there was something not mentioned. And then I'll bring that new technique in, and I'll say, "Okay, well, this is this is now what we're going to do. Instead of just holding this arm, we're going to pass this arm here." And then you know, like, so I usually do it in, in stages of like three or f- even four, sometimes different times are lessons. So it's like times that I'm actually teaching. Like, so I break it, drill it, break it, drill it, break it, drill it again because I realize that. If I take everybody down the whole road, down the whole scenic tour during the first time, nobody gets any of it at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's just one of those things that that I love teaching small details. Small details are, are a huge reason why I believe my jiu-jitsu, the jiu-jitsu I teach, the jiu-jitsu I sell is super it's super efficient is because of these small, tiny things that, that people aren't mentioning. I think shit your instructor never showed you. In those three instructions, the unfuck your jiu-jitsu, shit your instructor never showed you, and as- acai free. There's a lot of new stuff on there, but then there's stuff on there that has never been showed with other things. There's never been showed with those details. And I was really, you know, and that's what I really wanted to get out there. I was like, you know what? Here's all these adjustments that I've made I feel like they're better and I haven't seen anybody else teach them. And I think that it's a better way of approaching this. And so I was able to share it on that. And that's how I, you know, I like my jiu-jitsu to be. I like my jiu-jitsu to be for it to feel, for it to feel like I can hold a position for an hour. You know, like, yeah. so if I get to an arm bar or I get to a Kimura, I can hold this position for an hour because of these details. I don't have to be so haphazardly like trying to finish in seconds because I, I can't control this position. Just positions of control, where my weight is, how how I'm moving, where I'm looking next. All of that stuff at black belt is is super important to be able to teach a high level competitor later on. Yeah, 
And I love the bit you're saying about how you don't just info dump everything onto them out of the gate, but you give them the details they need to take a step forward. And then you wait until they hit the limitations of that knowledge and they get frustrated. And then then the mind is primed and ready for the next step, whether that be the instructor giving them the answer to their question or the instructor helping them get to that answer on their own. Or if the answer is unknown, then you can workshop it and maybe develop something new together. But that incremental approach is so important to learning anything complicated. I mean, if we were to flash back to the days before we had a GPS and driving assistance, if you're in a new city for the first time and you want to know how to get from point A to point B, and someone comes to you and they give you directions and they say, okay, you want to turn a left on Yon Street and then take a right on Wilson Avenue. And they just went off and off and off and gave you 20 things, just one after the other and said, okay, go. I mean, you would never be able to follow those instructions. But unfortunately, people teach jujitsu like that, where they will open up the class and they'll show in minuscule detail every single individual step for completing the technique, even if some of those steps are maybe above the level of the students and they're not ready for that detail yet, right? If you're teaching triangles, there's no point teaching someone how to underhook the leg to do the triangle if the person doesn't even know how to get the triangle in the first place and they don't know how to position their legs, right? You got to start with the foundation and then build on top of that. And that's a very powerful method for teaching because, Um, First of all, you can manage cognitive load with your students. You don't give them too much at once. Second, you can encourage a degree of Socratic learning where you help them discover the answer on their own. And then in the context of workshopping, if you encounter something that neither the teacher or the student knows, then you can start layering in those details and working on them together. Have you ever read the book by uh, Daniel Coyle, Talent Code? No, but it's right up there on my list. I actually might even see if I can get the guy on the podcast. We've uh, What's interesting is we've done a big run of sports psychologists on the podcast recently, and they've all basically said the thing that you're saying about the way that you teach and the way that you layer in that knowledge. And he was one of the first guys that I think that, I mean, of course, this has been around forever, but chunking it. So he's like, you know, chopping it down to to its very bare base of technique. So you So you go, okay, well, so it's almost like he, and he was talking about music. The Talent Code is a really good book. It's, it talks about music. It talks about soccer. It talks about tennis. It talks about, you know, just really anything. But doing something so that it's almost unrecognizable, right? So like you go through the movement so slow, you un, so it's unrecognizable. And then you start to chunk things together. So like with my kids' classes, and I believe that that I have some success with, with teaching kids is because I do a lot of verbal cues. And so with kids, it's a little bit different than, than with adults. I go, so if I'm going over a cue more, I say, all right, guard closed. I said, okay, break their posture, pull your knees to your chest. All right, get their hand on the ground, grab the wrist, open your guard, roll onto your elbow. And then I go backwards. I say, all right, close your guard. Grab the wrist, roll onto your elbow. And I'll do that maybe two or three times. Now I go, grab the wrist, grab your opponent's elbow and post your arm. And I'll have them go back down. And, you know, I just keep building up, building up, building up until we go to that Kimura suite. And I'm basically chunking these these positions together and not letting them move past the position because I want them to make sure that we're getting every step down so that when they put it all together for themselves, you know, I think we're in, we're back around to doing that with, with my three and six-year-olds, three to six-year-olds. And it's how many times can I get them to repeat this and also – kids need cues. You know, they need these cues to help them 
because it's much easier remembering and repeating than it is just remembering and keeping it to yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I think adults maybe don't do that as much as what they should is when they go, you know, everything has has a function, but they all kind of move at different times. And so if I'm looking for a triangle, I have to, number one, control, at least control one arm. And I have to make sure one arm's in and one arm's out. And then everything is is done in order, but the more, the better you get at it, the faster everything's going to look to where it looks like one thing. All of a sudden, yeah. it looks like a triangle. You know that like you're like, oh, that's a push arm, pull arm out triangle. That's simple. I, okay, I get that. But it's not that that simple in the beginning because you're going to ask somebody to spring load their hips as soon as they punch the arm inside and to get their their knee over the shoulder of your opponent and then close yes. your close your guard. So it's it's certain things like that that and, and I used to have a class that was called the lab and it was really good. But the problem was, was that I answered a lot of questions and. So people would ask me, oh, coach, I'm getting stuck here. And I would answer it. And I felt really good about it because I had the answer. Or I would at least, if I didn't have the answer, I would say, I would do it like this. This is something I would do. But we never drilled after that, if that made sense. It was like they we, they came in, I gave the answer, and everybody's like, huh, okay, cool. Yeah, thank you. That was, that's what I needed. I'm like, okay. And, I, and I'm starting to think, I'm like, man, nobody's – Nobody's drilling what we just went over. Nobody was going because it was that that problem was so specific to them that I gave them an answer, and maybe nobody saw the the need to drill it for themselves. Yeah, I I feel that because I've seen this all the time in jujitsu, and I am super guilty of this myself. Where sometimes you just want a fucking answer. <laughs> You just you just want professor to tell you where to put your damn arm. You don't want to think about it. But the problem is, if someone just tells you an answer and you don't have to work to get it and you don't then reapply that into your training, it's just not going to stick, right? There has to be a fulfillment loop where you actually then deliberately integrate that shit back into your training or it's just going to be in, in one year out the other. What my instructor does is if he knows that you have a, an area like a question you want to work on rather than just telling you he will just mercilessly exploit that hole in your game and just beat your ass over and over and over again with that hole until you figure it out <laughs> but that's very hard to do unless you're quite experienced at jiu-jitsu right and unless you have a, a class structure where you can devote that much time to every single one of your students but i love that approach because i found that to be so much more helpful than just being fed the answer and just having it given to me, which I would then never retain. It's so difficult as well because we're not, I mean, we're not, we don't run the sport like a, like any other sport, you know? So like when we run it like a yoga class, honestly, right? Like most jujitsu schools are kind of more about like wellness and culture and, and they don't seem to be as sport and science oriented as you would see in wrestling for example where they really dig into sports psychology they really have this distinct notion between a coach and a teacher and a student and things are very very structured and sport focused jiu-jitsu it's almost more like a lifestyle thing than it is a sport in a lot of ways at least for a lot of people yeah and nothing against any of those people i, I think that that's the, that that's a great route to choose and, and you know like we all do jiu-jitsu for different reasons we're all stuck on this magical ride together for whatever reason but if this sport was run like a professional sport was being run wins and losses would matter 
who's covering the back court, who's covering the front court, who's whose time on the mats is is winning defensive hours. I mean, if you think about it in, in those terms, you have to look at your your jujitsu and you have to say like, well, what do I really want out of myself? What 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 am I asking myself to do? Am I asking myself to be good at jujitsu? Am I asking myself to be great at jujitsu? Am I asking myself to just expend some energy and hopefully I catch a couple people and I'm in it for the ride? And most people's, you know, because I because we see it all over the place, people post their belt rankings, the people post their promotions, people post, you know, their their competition wins. And so for a lot of people, it's I want to get better. I want to be good. Well, if you want to be good, you have to super apply yourself like to be good at anything you have to be you have to apply yourself and i think a lot of people they don't apply the the negative parts of their day to their game you know that they don't really see that that they that they won they won their match and that they were sparring in but they made five to ten mistakes during that match and they just want to push it to the back of their head and go that was a tough one but I beat him. And if you want to keep beating that guy or guys like him, or like, you know, let's say that, let's say that it's that guy, but with just a slightly different skill set, that guy would have beat you. And so you, you have to look at your, like throughout your whole, and I'm probably better suited this for this than anybody else, because I'm very good at bashing myself or at least giving myself a hard time. I don't bash myself publicly, <laughs> but but inside, you know, like inside for what matters, I'm I'm very hard on myself and I see a ton of the mistakes I made. And even if I, I choked the person out, even if I, if I dominated the match, I'm upset about the mistakes that I made and that doesn't get off my brain. And so that's where like, you know, workshopping comes back in is that like, I missed the back take there. I felt sloppy on my back step. I don't know why that felt that way. I shouldn't have felt that way. I didn't control the neck the way I should have. That person got out of my omoplata, which is, that's ridiculous. Like I had that dead to rights. They're not necessarily, I'm not necessarily giving that person the credit as much as I'm giving myself a notation for, I need to be improved here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is such an important thing for people to understand, which is to, to be more deliberate and proactive with analyzing your own game. I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there who are hard on themselves or self-critical, like you're suggesting, and that's a valuable thing because you need to have the awareness of where your weaknesses are, but just being self-critical by itself isn't enough. It then becomes a matter of, okay, how do I turn this into a practice of continuous improvement for myself. You brought up a great example about how a lot of people, if they if they won the match, they just assume they did everything right and they don't do any further self-study. Whereas if they lost the match, then they just beat themselves up and they, they don't really bother to look at the things that actually maybe they did well, regardless. I mean, there's a lot of things beyond just the win and the loss that can dictate the performance. And I think a lot of times people fall into that resulting trap where they get so focused on the result that they're not thinking about their performance itself and whether there's anything to be learned from it. I mean, I've, I've sparred with people before where they have just beat my ass mercilessly, but I'm a pretty good turtle player. So I was able to deny them points. And at the end of it, I was able to, you know, maybe they tried to take my back. 
they failed because my turtle defense is good and I wound up on top. And if this were an actual match, I probably would have won by like one advantage or something. I mean, that's not something to brag about. If I got my ass beat for five straight minutes and then I wound up to on top by a technicality, right? There's still a lot to learn from that. And the flip side is you could still have lost and put on an amazing performance where you could still learn a lot of new things about yourself that worked really, really well. One of the practices we use on in my day job is what we call Kaizen, the art of continuous improvement. It's derived from Japanese uh, manufacturing and management practices, where the idea is whenever you do something, either, you basically ask yourself three questions. What went well? What could be improved? And what am I going to do differently next time? And you try to create this, this loop where it's not so much about just celebrating the win or beating yourself up up over the loss. Regardless of whether it was win, lose, or draw, you always ask yourself those three questions. And the goal is to create actionable change that you can then apply for the next time around. So there should always be something. And I think that a lot of people, when they go to class in jujitsu, they just go on autopilot and there isn't that degree of self-reflection. They just go in and whatever professor is teaching for the day, they just try to internalize that. And they probably fail because there's too much detail because they weren't ready for all of that info. But I think really, if, if it were me knowing what I know now, if I wanted to better maximize the 13 years on the mats I've had, if I could go back in a time machine, rather than just going to class and just doing what my instructor said, I would just go in with those three steps, right? I would go to class and I'd ask myself, okay, what did I do well? What did I not do so well? And what is my actionable idea that I want to try for the next time I go to class? Man, you just get on a, on a loop like that and it becomes like a bicycle and you're always moving forward. And it's such a valuable practice for continuous improvement. Works in almost everything, but it's especially good in a competitive sport like jujitsu. Yeah, I think l- listening to, to those questions to yourself keep you accountable. Like, because just because you're coming into jujitsu, doesn't mean that you're being accountable. You know, there's so many people that sometimes we don't understand it. So many people that, that come in at blue belt, like the blue belts that I, I put on people, like that's probably the hardest belt to get for me just because I don't want to give a belt to keep somebody. And I also don't want to give a belt early when I know that, that like there's that two year quit frame you know, like I was like, going to say, if you want to keep someone in jujitsu, probably the worst thing you could do is give them a blue belt because they'd be gone the next day. So that's what I try to do is I try to move them past that. So where they're, they're at blue standard, but they're, but they're past that already. So it's almost like yeah. they're that. Why would they quit now? They're so, they've already invested so much, but we see people all the time quitting at purple. We see people quitting at not really brown. I mean, I think brown's... I almost quit at Four Stripe Brown. I, I left jujitsu for a year and a half. And it wasn't until I did a lot of reflection that I rekindled my passion for it. But I was... I kind of assumed at that point I was just going to walk away and never get my black belt because I just lost interest. And so what made you lose interest? What, what was the... So that's the biggest thing is that is that when we're talking about, okay, class development, you know, coming in and and, and wanting to be good... What what was the thought process behind of It was exactly what we discussed earlier, where I was under the impression that being a four stripe brown belt, you know, getting my black belt imminently any day now, I should be able to just roll into the gym, tune up everybody, and know everything about jujitsu. And I just felt like I don't know everything about jujitsu. And I just 
really beat myself up over it. I got a lot of imposter syndrome. And it wasn't until I went away and I really reflected that I realized it's okay and actually desirable in a lot of ways to not know everything about jujitsu. And when I came back with that mindset, it changed everything. It changed how much I enjoyed the sport. It improved my performance. It improved my ability to learn. Uh, It was a game changer to be able to rekindle that beginner's mind and be okay with not knowing everything again. I, I feel that way a lot about leg locks. You know, I'm, I'm learning there, but it is such a subsystem. It is. It's like a different language. Yeah. I mean, like, so if you show me any guard, right, any guard you show me, any sweep you show me, anything you show me gets, usually gets me to some place that I'm, I, I recognize, you know? So whether, whether I'm sweeping somebody over, whether I'm, it's a different guard play or, or concept, it's all somewhat very familiar, but when you're playing with the legs and you're in the saddle or ashigarami or, or whatever your choice of word is, because I don't even know which words we're using nowadays for these for this. I just call that, the whole game barren bullshit. I'm done with it. I, 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 I want to train the way that Professor Elio would have trained. You know, I'm going to be I'm going to start on the bottom. I'm going to get on top and then I'm going to choke you. I don't need to go upside down or tie your leg behind your back or do anything like that. If I got to do a roll or do anything athletic, I'm out, man. I got into jujitsu because this was a sport for small, lazy people. I didn't think I had to be an athlete. If I got to be upside down, that's not my jujitsu. End rant. (laughs) I've really stopped inverting. I I really liked inverting for a while. I used to love the tornado sweep and my neck and back can't just can't take it anymore. But like when you look at the leg lock system and you see how many funnels, like secondary leg, first primary leg, what pummels to hear, what the person can do to stop this. I mean, it is, it's a, it's a completely another chess game in jujitsu itself, you know, and that can either go on for 10 minutes or that could go on for three minutes. You don't know, you know? And so just being involved in jujitsu for so long, I had to go like, okay, well, now's the time I take, like I was always going to say, I'm going to take the time and I'm going to start to learn, learn the leg lock stuff. So I've, I've invested myself in the, in the leg lock game, but it still doesn't feel the same as jujitsu. You know, yeah. like, like it feels a lot like, like I, I've played leg locks. Of course, like if I'm a black belt, I've played leg locks and heel hooks to a large extent. I just haven't played them to so much of an extent that it is the only thing that I'm pummeling and looking for as I'm attacking. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's made me feel like a beginner and, and I, and I have, I have students that understand the leg lock game better than me. And that's just the way it's going to like, for now, that's just the way it is. And I take those moments with the students. And I'm like, okay, let's start in 50, 50 and let's, and, and let's pummel and let's see what happens, you know? And then I'll go, okay, you start in saddle and I'll start here. And I'm pretty much workshopping my way into understanding the, understanding the leg lock game all over again. So it's like, I understood it to where I think like, a good point to, to say like, okay, where my knowledge kind of stopped was after Alan Belcher and Tokino. So I understood everything that Alan Belcher did to stop Tokino's leg locks. But all of a sudden, two, three years later, people are backstepping into, into the honey hole. And now you're in this, this just big question mark of a, of a game. You're like, how much am I going to invest in this? You know? And, to be honest, you have to invest a lot because a lot of top players know it. A lot of good guys know it. A lot of guys are playing that, especially if you play Nogi. You know, if you play Nogi, you you have to be aware of, of the injuries and what the injuries feel like. And it almost feels like when I was learning 
rubber guard. You know, like I started learning rubber guard. This is probably 2004 or five. I started learning rubber guard because of just how easily it was to, to get the triangle and Gogo Plata, you know, and then I think Aoki was around that time as well. And it's one of those things where it's like, it's such a huge subsystem that like, how much time am I going to develop there? Like how much time can I develop there? You know? Well, this is a really interesting extension of what you brought up earlier, where you were talking about chunking. And it's probably worth explaining that for people who aren't familiar with the concept. Basically, the idea is the human brain is very good at taking a bunch of related information and globbing it together into a new umbrella concept or a chunk. So a common example of this is if you look at your credit card, it's a 16-digit number, but they break it into groups of four because it's easier for the human mind to chunk numbers into groups of four. And then instead of having to remember 16 digits, you're just remembering four sequences. And the brain finds that a lot easier to understand. And the same thing happens with any new skill acquisition. I mean, you're bringing up how if you're not familiar with the leg lock systems, the whole system looks totally alien to you and foreign to you. And it's so complicated and you have to stop and think about everything that's happening. But hey, I mean, if you took someone who only trained leg locks and they never trained classical jujitsu, they would look at the stuff we do and have the exact same problems, right? They would, they might say, well, I have systemized all of these ideas in my head. I've basically chunked them. So this whole sequence of steps and micro positions, to me, in my mind, that's just a chunk that we call ashigurami, for example, or outside ashi, right? I've just chunked these and now I don't need to think about them. I can think about them as a big concept and my body just goes into motion when I want to do them. But if those people had never trained classical jujitsu, you would show them a triangle and they would be incredibly confused because they haven't chunked that in their mind. So a big part of getting good at something is chunking something in your mind to the point where you no longer see 10 individual complicated steps to do the move. You just see the one big idea. I mean, if you had to describe the triangle choke without chunking it, it would be a living nightmare, right? You, you have to say, okay, so, so what I'm doing is I'm going to be taking my one leg and I'm basically going to be creating a triangle with my legs. Now my instep goes inside the other knee pit. And then I, you know, if you had to explain every single detail you knew about the triangle choke, you'd be here all day. But if I say triangle choke, then everyone listening to this conversation knows exactly what we're talking about. Although they may have differing levels of knowledge about the exact mechanics of how it works. And the benefit is once you chunk that into your mind, now you can start thinking about higher level concepts because you don't need to think about that lower level stuff. So instead of being so focused on every individual step of the triangle choke, like a white belt might do, if you've been training triangles for years, all of that is now in your muscle memory and you just have this idea in your head of a triangle and your body just goes into motion. So the cognitive parts of your brain where you're really doing your deep thinking, they're not worried now about where your arm goes, where your leg goes, because your body can do that fast and without really having to deliberate on it. So your your cognitive functions can now be thinking about things like strategy, like, okay, how can I bait this guy into the triangle? Or how can I do the triangle in such a way that I'm ready to pivot and switch into an omoplata if the guy moves in the wrong direction? So this is a really, really great idea that I, I actually got from uh, Josh Waitskin, 
in his book, The Art of Learning. He calls it form to leave form. But basically what he's talking about is this practice of chunking, where you take things, you build the concepts up in your mind, and you drill them into the point where you understand them intuitively, and then you start layering on the next level of knowledge on top of it. So I think the thing that makes new systems so intimidating for people, like if you want to go into the leg lock game, is you don't have those chunks ingrained in your head. So it feels uncomfortable. It feels alien and foreign. And your happy place is going back to the stuff you're used to. So if you want to develop a new system or study something new, you have to do it long enough that you can actually ingrain those chunks in your mind. And that honestly means you're going to be bad at it for a long time. (laughs) And, And that's why I think people don't learn things as frequently as they could because it doesn't feel good to practice something that you're not good at. It feels better to go back to your comfort zone, but that's not how you learn, right? You want to go outside of your comfort zone if you want to pick up the new skills. So I I love Josh Waitzkin and I wish I had the ability to to train with him or or talk technique with him because, you know, he's so just so everybody knows he's the, he's Bobby Fisher, you know, he's made after him, the, the movie. And then he's also a push hands, which I didn't really know what that was. It's he's a push hands champion, which where they, they I guess they connect with each other and they try to use their their kinetic energy to force somebody else down. It's like judo, but no gi, and you can only do like wrist and arm grips. That's basically it is. So if you envision what that kind of form of wrestling would look like, it it is a legitimate competitive sport, despite the fact that it's Tai Chi. I mean, most people, when they think of Tai Chi, they think of like a, a meditative activity. But push hands is the competitive sport version, and basically it is stand-up, no-gi judo with a focus on arm control. That's basically how I would describe it to someone who hasn't seen it before. All right, so he became a BJJ chess champion, a push hands champion, and he's a Marcelo Garcia black belt. Yeah, he's been all over the place. Yeah, and so then you, so you got a guy like Waitzkin, and, and he he wrote, you know, like if you're gonna stay inside your shell, right? If you're a hermit crab, and you're gonna stay inside your shell, right? You will have zero growth. You will stunt your growth, right? So the times that we're outside of our shell is when we're most susceptible. But that's the only time we're actually growing is when we can find a, a larger shell, you know? And so, and it's good that we're not actually hermit crabs because then that'd be life or death. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like a hermit crab. You know, you're going to outgrow that shell. You got to find a new one. Yeah, but let's hope, it's good that we're not, that we're not, because <laughs> if we did have to leave our shell, we are super unprotected, right? But what they're saying is that in that phase, you have to move on. Like you, you can't stay in the same shell. You're not going to live that way. You know, you have to move on, you have to develop and you have to overcome whatever issues you have now in order to be successful later on. And it's just one of those things that, that I think, you know, and, and, I, and I like it when you say like, it's, it's uncomfortable to be in, it doesn't feel right. And, and that's something that jujitsu has always done for me, which is like, I felt when things feel right, they feel right. And when things don't feel right, you want to exit it almost right away because you have a certain expectation of how your jiu-jitsu is going to feel and how it's going to look. And when it starts feeling and looking funky, you try to just be like, you immediately turn that off. And it's one of those things where at all times, I've now forced myself into kind of like this, where I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn new stuff. That's it. I'm going to learn new positions. I'm going to at least be somewhat adequate at a lapel guards. I'm going to be adequate at some rubber stuff and I'm going to be adequate at the leg game. And 
but that's a lot of work. People don't like, I just explained those three things, but people don't understand how many hours it's going to take for me for that to feel comfortable for me. And I believe my Jiu-Jitsu knowledge is, is up there, but it's going to be difficult for me. You know what I mean? So the same things that, that, that are going on with them, like, oh, I can't, I suck at this position. I don't do this. If you do that, you are only going to suck at that position. And that's it. There's no benefit ever from hiding from a technique, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't need to master everything, right? I mean, this is, like I said, a misconception I had where I would always beat myself up because I didn't have infinite knowledge of every aspect of jujitsu. That is just not possible. But it's still, even if you're not a, a master at a particular piece of the art, and even if you're not even necessarily interested in becoming a master in that piece of the art, it still merits at least a little bit of study, because if nothing else, it's going to give you some creative connective ideas you can graft into the rest of your game, right? I mean, even if you never, ever want to play lapel stuff, which is fine, I understand it, right? You can you can be great at jujitsu without getting into the modern lapel game, but at the bare minimum, you should at least understand enough about it so that you can defend against it, and you should ideally understand enough about it that your game is not super predictable. Because the problem is, if everyone knows that you don't do these things, it's very easy for them to predict what you will do. And it's much easier to beat an opponent if you can predict what they're going to do. Yeah, I have so much fun because I'm also an MMA coach. I have so much fun like working with wrestlers because so much of wrestling, of good wrestling, it has mechanical details, right? Like these, and I'm not talking about like, you know, like when you, what I maybe thought wrestling was, was like, you know, these blast doubles that George St. Pierre's hitting, you know, but just with the, a lot of the Americans were doing and some of what the, what the Russians are showing us in mechanical details of fighting off the wall and takedowns and foot trips and different stuff like that. It's just so interesting that I wish that more of this was out when I was competitive, you know, because the, the cage pushing people up against the cage and taking them down was my thing, right? But there's so much more now available to than just a couple like high crotches running the single, you know, picking up and running the double or, or body locking to a takedown trip. There's so much more out there. And you see these guys like Makachev and you see these guys like Habib just be masterful in, in these transitions. And it's good because... I'm not, I know I'm not going to stop learning. I know that if, if I'm going to make my MMA guys good at competing, then I have to know enough about that position to explain to them so that we, we can both beat that position. So I'm in the corner and he's in the cage. And it's the same thing for jiu-jitsu. It's like if you don't like lapel stuff, which I didn't. I, I had zero interest in lapel. I had no interest in lapel. I played reverse De La Hiva and De La Hiva, like I was telling you earlier. So we had a conversation a little bit earlier where I was saying the guards I used to play. And I had neck injury where my arms got kind of weaker and I still have a weaker arm. And I'm, that's not my inversion. So I'm no longer inverting on my neck or on my shoulders. I don't care if people say, oh, it's not your neck. Trust me, it's all your spine. You're inverting on your spine. Whether you think you are or you aren't, you are. And then all of a sudden I had a lower back injury that got rid of my hooks. So my dorsiflexion to where like butterfly, delahiva, and reverse delahiva are really been changed by these injuries that I've had. And I'm thinking, well, I still got spider guard, 
but what else do I have? I immediately go to my Delahiva. I can set my Delahiva up, but can I hold them in that position like I used to? Can I keep them stuck in Delahiva? And the answer was, was no, I can't. I'm going to have to learn to play something else. So the lapel, pulling the lapel out and playing worm or squid guard has become something that I think is necessary for my growth, or at least for me to be, to still not just enjoy jiu-jitsu, but still, still win. If that makes sense. Like, like yeah. winning is fun. <laughs> so, well, that's a very underrated aspect of the game, right? A lot of the time we talk about learning new things because we want to be better. So we're looking to graft on new details or fill holes in our game or get sharper weapons that we can use. But there's also this aspect of the game, which is, okay, either my goals have changed or my physical attributes have diminished, and I need to make changes to my game, not because I've necessarily found better techniques, but because I'm now playing with limitations that I didn't have before. And this can result in you having to adjust your game for reasons that you probably don't really want, because you'd love to always be bigger and better and stronger, but things change as you get older. And it's not even about diminishing physical attributes. I mean, yes, injuries happen. And yes, your athletic abilities diminish over time. But there's also a matter of changing life priorities. I mean, there's incredibly stupid shit I used to do when I was like a white, blue, purple belt that I would never do now simply because I'm a family man, I've got kids, and I don't want to be paralyzed. (laughs) Right. But I mean, I remember one time rolling with the guy and he got me in like a super tight arm bar and I was not going to tap and my elbow popped. And the way I got out of it was literally I did like a standing flip and it managed to disentangle the arm bar. In retrospect, I probably could have wound up ripping my arm right out of my socket by doing that. But I was like, I'm going to get out of this. I would never train like that now, ever. But I was young and dumb and stupid and my life priorities were different back then. Right. So even if you tap. Technically, still could do something now. Sometimes your priorities just change, and not all evolutions to your game are made because you're looking to be more dominant. Sometimes you're looking to replace tools that just no longer work for you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because if fun is losing, then that's great. Like, I guess that's fine for people. Like any match I sit down for, I'm I want to win. Like whether I'm rolling, whether I'm doing whatever, like. You can't say there's no ego in it. Like if I'm if I'm saying, okay, you go and I go, let's see who gets the better of each other this time. I want it to be me at all the time. You know, that's just my natural competitive spirit. But in in order for that to continue happening, I'm gonna have to make some real adjustments because some of some of the best parts of my game are compromised. And I'm not gonna let those whatever's been compromised, you know, just sit on the table and say, like, well, that's just the hand I've been dealt. You know, so I remember telling friends or students or, or, or teammates, it's like anytime somebody pops their arm, I ask them how many times it popped because usually three is bad. <laughs> I'd love to know. Okay. If anyone out there is a scientist, I would love to know if there's any science behind this because I was told the exact same thing. I mean, I mean, you and I train in completely different corners of this continent, but my instructor told me the same thing. He was like, count the pops. If it's one pop, it's okay. I'm pretty sure that's all bullshit, but I actually would love to know. <laughs> I've escaped some good, some R bars after a pop. A pop, it gives you a little bit of room. The second pop gives you a lot, a lot more room, but it starts getting, it starts getting weird. 
<laughs> yeah, th th think of the first pop like a trip to the chiropractor. They're just loosening you up, right? The hyperextension doesn't really start until the third pop. Right? That's just that's just some some knowledge that people can go with until they break their arm. Some some kinesiologist is going to send me some blistering hate mail. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Oh well. Listen, we've been going on. I, I've been told this since I don't know. This has been going on probably 12, 15 years that I've gone off this in my head that three pops are okay or three pop three <laughs> pops two pops are okay. Three pops is is you're in trouble. But and I think that's where like we were talking with workshopping and, and doing different things is that usually I can do a lot of it on my own. Like I used to be able to do a lot of workshopping on my own in the middle of roles and different stuff like that. Like, okay, I want to add an esteem lock in this position, but being older and not being able to get as many roles or, or train as, as, as hard as I would like, I'm not going to be able to force those situations as much as I usually did. And I, and I believe this super important for a lot of guys coming up is, is positional sparring, you know? And so like, I'm saying like starting in 50-50 or starting in, in in the Delhiva and having a goal where the goal is not not to submit your opponent, not to go into a, a scramble where you are with your opponent continually, like edge to blade to blade, is that you have one thing you're trying to pull off. Yeah. And your opponent has one thing, not one thing, he has a concept he's trying to pull off, whether it's defend it or it's pass or it's undo the, the guard. And just putting myself there over and over and over and over and over again until it gets cleaner, it gets cleaner, and I feel better with the positions. And I think that in jiu-jitsu, we don't do that as much as we should, you know, and I should be doing it more often with my students. It's just my students don't like to show up all the time. That's the biggest problem I have with them is that, <laughs> is that I will, <laughs> we'll be going over like uh, – so I call it dental floss, like where you put the lapel between the legs and it gives you like a really good underhook as well as a pretty good single leg or in double. And like we'll play just from the just from that position, you know, just like person gets the, the dental floss and we go live. And that really improves people's games where where it's like there's one goal there. It's it's to finish something that has uh, involves the dental floss or it involves that person breaking the dental floss and passing or not even passing, just breaking the dental floss, which is a very strong grip to have anyways. Yeah, I remember a similar situation on my side when I wanted to start really digging into seated guards, which are now a, a big part of my game, but they weren't always the challenge I was having was getting in close enough. You know, I'd be sitting there scooting around on the ground and I couldn't get in close enough without my opponent initiating a guard pass and getting past me before I was able to set anything up. Now, if you go into a situation like that and your goal is the standard goal in class, which is like do well and win, then probably what's going to happen is you're not going to play stuff you're not good at. You're going to gravitate towards the things that you're comfortable with because that's what's more likely to help you win. So if you want to actually acquire skills, I agree with you that you want to have very specific targeted goals and the more specific you can get, the more likely you are to get results out of that. So I started rescoping the purpose of my class. So my goal was basically get into a seated position, first of all, because I want to make sure I'm creating the situation where I can practice this. And then second, 
Find ways to close the distance. My goal is not in class to tap people out. My goal is get to seated guard and close the distance before they're able to initiate a pass. And just having a very micro-targeted goal like that, within a few classes, I was able to dramatically improve my ability with seated guards just because I I micro-targeted the weakness in my game and I was able to fix it. Yeah, 100%. And I think that that's really the only way to fix it because... There's new, there's just these people understand, like, as we go up the level, as we enter into, like, I won't say elite level, but as we enter into where people are very competent at jiu-jitsu, it's, you're not just going to be able to put this here and that there. It just doesn't work like that. Nobody's yeah. just going to walk into your, like, I'll walk into your seated guard because I'm an idiot and I like, I like challenges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the reason you would do that as a higher belt is because you want to practice defending against that position. But if your goal is to win, you would never just walk into the person's guard. Like I said, I like guard passing. So I'm like, anybody that has has that kind of like, all right, I want to play seated guard. I'm like, all right, I want to pass your seated guard. You know, <laughs> it's that kind of like. Yeah, of course. You want to be a bastard. You want to chase me around the island in the kitchen with a knife while I throw toasters at you. We've been through this before. Yeah, I want you to. I want you to reimagine you know, everything you know about seated guard. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I'll walk into it, but I'm not going to get any better if I stay away from your seated guard. Yeah. If I run from your seated guard, the moment that you get good enough to change that distance on me is the moment that I don't know shit there. You know a lot. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where in class is that when you start getting up there, it's you're challenging. Like, like I don't want you to be able to, to get the seated guard easily. You know, but I would definitely want to be involved in the progress, if that makes sense. I want to be involved. Like if somebody's good at spider guard, I usually let them set up spider guard at some point in, in the sparring. And that's usually yeah. after I've, I've won the first role. <laughs> if I win the first <laughs> role, because I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, that I can get it out of my head where I need to win or I need to, to smash this person. But like, it, it's one of those things where you're working on changing the, on getting closer and I need to work on what happens when he does get closer. Yeah. And, and that's the people I like to, to roll with a lot is because, you know, I, I know that I know they want something and I'm not opposed to them having it. I'm just not going to give it easy. But now if they did get it now, it's on his terms and my terms to figure it out and battle at that position. Yeah. It's funny. It's so weird because and I think this is where people often get confused is understanding the philosophy of, of what you should try to do when you're sparring. And it's a little bit different because if you're sparring to win, whether it be in competition or just having competitive roles in the gym, you should be trying to funnel the fight towards the situations that you're comfortable in because you're good at them and you want to take the fight to where you're good at. But if you're sparring to learn, then you want to do the opposite. You want to funnel the thing into the situations that you're terrible at. So it's actually the opposite, right? And that's an important mindset to have when you're training is to understand that these are two different tools, right? You need to have a set of strategic funnels to take the fight to where you're good. But when you want to get better, you got to do the opposite. You got to be trying to steer things into the places where you suck. Yeah. And and, and have a good attitude about it, man. It's like, one of those things where like shit on shin against a really good guy is, is a pain in the ass. Yeah. If they know what they're doing from sea to guard, shit on shin, you're not going to use your hyper athleticism against them. If, if they know how to create the angle and elevate your leg, you know, but 
man, if you're going to be a guard passer, then you're going to have to know how to pass the shit on shin. You know, if you're going to be a guard player, you have to know how to funnel somebody into into that guard. At any time, I'm trying to learn. At the same time, I'm trying to feel good about myself being intuitive. Like there's there's a million techniques I don't know that he's rattling through or he's or he's going through with his mind. I'm just trying to give him a hard enough time till I find something that, that resembles something that that I know. Because I, I can't know everything off of Shin on Shin. So once he gets me in single leg X, I start going into my single leg X attacks, my passes. And if he gives me hell there, there's the game gets better. That's in my mind. Like all of a sudden now I'm being challenged. Now I'm worried. My heart rate comes up. I'm thinking. I'm starting to feel feel the role a lot more than just like, you know, dancing around like a Ted a day and, and, and passing the guy's guard like it's nothing. You know, it's, it's those micro battles for position, for something that you need versus something that I want. You know, it's for me, that's that's what jujitsu will always be for me. It, it will never be like it's about winning. So it's, it's about winning. But jujitsu will always be for me is beating people in particular positions because yeah. that feels good. Beating somebody in a particular position, outmaining them that I could finish with a submission. I could finish with, you know, like with a broad applaud. I could finish with a fine triangle. I guarantee you my favorite part of it was probably the pass or probably whatever that person gave me the biggest trouble with in that match. And I overcame it. And that's something that's special about jujitsu is that you get a, a lot of times to feel really good about overcoming things in class. So you get a lot of like you may lose, but if they put you in X guard and you stepped out of X guard and you did it brilliantly, then that's a really good feel good moment, you know, of of where this person had you dead to rights and you were able to use your skill, your intuition and your knowledge to pass something that shouldn't have been passed because it was it was on correctly. And I think that that's for me, Jiu-Jitsu will always be special in the in the finite areas of it and that's what i always end up walking away with anytime i i train or anytime i move like just put me in a position that's that's going to be extremely difficult for me that you're great at and if i can beat that that's the best thing for me in the world you know awesome because i watch certain guys and you're saying yeah like walking into the guard is never a good idea and you know there's somebody like keenan said never let your opponent make grips never let your opponent make to connect to a guard right always stay far enough away to where basically you're looking at toriando like flying knee slide or like or maybe you're, you're looking to get under double unders but his point was never allow your opponent to to make a position on you and that makes a ton of sense for somebody who is wanting to be a world champion because giving giving your that team the ball is dangerous like if you want to win a basketball game, you make sure that you that that team doesn't have the ball. So every time you get it, you try to steal. You try to make sure they have no bad they have bad shots. You try to make sure that that at all times every possession is a turnover. Well, if you if you're wanting to be a world champion, that's going to be the way to go because giving the team the ball gives them a chance to win. But part of the fun of the of the game is is when that team does have the ball and still shutting them down. Yeah. <laughs> It's incredibly confidence boosting when you can 
let someone play their very best game and you can still shut it down. That's one of, like you said, that's just one of the feel good moments in jujitsu. Yeah. I couldn't think of anything that would make me that, that if I could just do that continually, I would just want to be in everybody's best guard and didn't just keep going. Yeah. You know, just keep like, I don't, I don't care if your best guard is the lasso or whatever it is. If I can stop that, that's, you know, and this is coming from a guard passers mentality too. So as you can tell, when I play bottom, I'm usually, I'm the best part of the bottom playing, playing bottom for me is, is trying to get people to flip over my head. You know, that's, I always, any Tomonagi, any kind of sweep that makes them feel stupid and roll, roll them backwards is, is my shit. <laughs> so, so like jujitsu kind of got weird for me because I came from, it really was similar to skateboarding. Did you ever skateboard? I have not. When I was a kid, I tried one time, I fell and landed on my face, and that was the end of my skateboarding adventure. So it really resembles skateboarding because you can manifest most things or you can drive most things into those positions if if you're smart. So like let's say I wanted I wanted to to hit to Ollie, hit a nose grind. And then after that, I'm going to jump a trash can. And after that, I'm going to hit a 50-50, uh, you know, grind going downstairs. I can't tell if you're talking about skateboarding or leg lock systems. It all just sounds like a different language to me. They're, these are skateboarding systems now. <laughs> and that was your personal creativity coming out. You know what I mean? Like, that's what you thought was difficult. That's what That's the line that you chose. And that's what you wanted to see. And in jiu-jitsu, you can kind of steer that the same way where it's like, I want to pass certain things of this guy's guard. So, and I want to do, I want, and I want to do it in a certain way. And so it's kind of, it's kind of similar into like setting up like of your personality. Like your personality is a lot of your jiu-jitsu is, is expressed through, through the choices you make, you know? And I think that especially having all these subsystems and everything else that makes it jujitsu available to be for everybody, you know? So it can be for the closed guard guy who won't let go of your cross collar, you know? And it can be for the guy that wants to be upside down all day and, and like have no joints in his legs. Cause he's like, you can't pass his guard. <laughs> you know, it's like each person you're doing this with is you're doing jujitsu with. Well, that's the crazy thing. Is that there's so many different things that are going on. And there's so many different ways that jiu-jitsu is happening, but it's all different. So there's like you got the stocky guy, you got the the bendy guy, you got the guy who plays lapels, and this is all jiu-jitsu, and, and it all falls under the form of jiu-jitsu. You know, so that's that's to me that's one of the craziest things is that one role can look nothing like the other role, but it's you're still utilizing the same concepts and techniques except though that's just a concepts and body mechanics except the techniques are different yeah i love the the possibility of self-expression in jujitsu i mean everyone talks about this but it's not until you've been training for a while that you really get to start to actually feel that yourself and that is one of the cool things about the sport is being able to author your own style and at some point, maybe even contribute back to the general knowledge. If you can start uncovering things in your workshops that other people hadn't discovered before, you know, on that note, I got a question for you, something that I wonder, you know, we talked earlier about how nobody in jujitsu does double blind experimentation, but wouldn't it be cool if we did 
Like, can you imagine having two people and you put blindfolds on them and they don't know who they're sparring with and they both have different goals of things they want to try or work on, little experiments, and you don't know what the other guy's goal is. And so you're just sparring. I think that would be awesome. I, I think whether we see or not, I don't think it matters. I think we're blind to, to somebody's ambitions either way, right? Like, you don't know when that guy's going to sit for that leg lock, right? You don't even know if he's a leg locker. So that's like the biggest, <laughs> that's the biggest thing is, it's almost like the blind study of, of jujitsu is done in a tournament because you have zero clue what that guy wants to funnel and where he wants to go with it. You know, I think jujitsu would, would really benefit from the kind of research that, that, that we're like, we're, we're implying could even take place because we've seen what happens with basketball and baseball, like data. Right. So we, we know that. So if we watch Moneyball, right, or we watch basketball, we know that like most shots, like coaches are, are, are leaning on statistics to guide them in choices of purchasing, purchasing players. It's guiding them in choices of, of who to start and who not to start, who, who's on the floor when they, and when they should be on the floor of basketball or, or, and we have no metrics like that. And that's the craziest thing is to think that we don't have that there was 350 people attempted a knee slide pass, you know, 85 were, were, were successful, you know? And I wonder at some time if we're going to have something capable of this where we look at statistics and it becomes a statistic-oriented sport where it's like, hey, man, you know that that's a low, a low scoring statistic, you know, like we're not going to do – we're not going to do that, you know? Or individual people like playing Delahiva on Leandro Lowe is not going to work. It's it's all right here in the statistics. He passes ninety eight percent of people's Delahiva, right? And so I think it'll be interesting to see if at any point if it's even possible because I know that there's a lot of money in these other sports. There's billions of dollars in baseball and, and basketball, but it would be super interesting to have a stat sheet. That, that kind of comes down to like right-legged to left-legged attacks, you know, whose finish is more on, on one side or the other, and actually have like a stat sheet on a, on on like a Mikey Musumeci, you know, and you could start game planning your, your matches against like a Mikey Musumeci by by really honing in on the stats themselves rather than watching tape and, and just trying to get as ready as you can. Yeah, if people started moneyballing jujitsu, that would be so interesting because I think we'd learn a lot. The sport is so new and underdeveloped compared to a lot of the bigger, more popular sports. And it would be fascinating if jujitsu ever got to the point where that kind of investment and data analysis made sense and you started to see people really digging through and mining that information. Because I would be fascinated to know, just at a very micro detail, what the data really says about what works and what doesn't. I mean, it might be just dreaming because of course I think the sport would have to grow and explode to a crazy extent before you'd see that. But the things we would learn would be incredible. I would love to know the answers to some of those questions. Yeah. I, I don't really understand how a lot of the analytics work, like how they how they retrieve it so much. You know, like I've watched some stuff where it's like they cue on the person with the ball and they cue on the next person that's been passed to and that's how they're getting some of their analytics. But it would like you would think in a sport that we call this like a science, right? That there would be data. Yeah. Right. Because there has to be data 
if we're going to use the word science. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is something I can actually talk about a bit because this is actually part of my day job. The main issue with data is just that good quality data is very expensive. Just the amount of time required to, first of all, collect the the raw data itself, like in this case, the footage, and then to start actually extracting data points from that, it would be just such a huge endeavor. If jujitsu ever got to the point where like other sports, there's millions of dollars flying back and forth and you could invest in hiring someone to analyze data and actually get a return on that because it would benefit your team. I could totally see that happening. I could see that happening in something like MMA, where there's a lot more money and a lot more popularity in the sport. But I think in jujitsu, until it gets to the point where you can justify hiring a bunch of people to basically gather and collect all of that data, until there's enough money flowing through the sport to make that worthwhile, we probably won't see it. Um, Unless there's a crazy army of volunteers out there doing this that I don't know about. But it would be certainly really interesting to see. I I just think that, you know, like maybe it's my ignorance in data collection is that like I'm thinking a lot of it's computer organized. You know, like like a computer's got a brain and the computer understands jiu-jitsu and it's able to read it because I just don't understand how basketball, like, I guess there is, there has to be somebody there overseeing the, like the basketball, you know, data. But like, I was thinking like some supercomputer that understands like what an east slice is, what this slice is, what left to right is. And I was thinking, well, man, that's, once we have that, that information, like, you know, then, then jujitsu changes completely because it's a sport to be won, you know, but you're, so you're, are you telling, you're saying that almost all data collection, there is a person putting that data together? It depends on the type of data. Some types of data are automatically collected just because of the nature of what you're doing. But if it's going to involve some sort of image or video recognition, AI is still pretty new in that regard. You can do things like facial recognition with AI and have that work all right. But things like recognizing a specific technique or even recognizing the adjustments in a technique, like for example, when someone does a knee cut pass, it's not just about do they do a knee cut pass, but what setup did they use? What was the configuration of of like their arms and their legs? What was the the distance between their elbows and their rib cage, for example? All of that stuff probably at this point still requires a, a human to catalog it. But if AI got to the point where it could just recognize all of these details and you could just feed into it every competition video from the last 10 years, man, the things we would learn would be incredible. That would be insane. Yeah. Well, Maliki, thank you so much for coming by, man. I always love having you on. If people want to follow you or check out your work, where do they go to do that? So my Instagram is Maliki Friedman. I have a DVDs and different stuff like that out on MalikiFriedman.com. I'm making a home on mental models. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm always trying to get on talk to you and and talk to different people and I'm sorry I didn't give any crazy uh any stories about chasing and killing people today. <laughs> It's always nice when I can get through a podcast without someone confessing to a murder, you know? <laughs> too, it's it's too bad. I I wanted to bring I wanted to bring some weirdo violence. But man, if you follow me on Instagram, you can follow me, you can find me pretty much anywhere else. And hopefully I'll be on this podcast again because I learn a lot. You know, that's the cool thing is that is that you pull a lot of good information out and to think about, you know, and, and now I know I'm going to go back and wish there wasn't data. I'm just going to sit there and screw and be like, if the data was there, we would know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I always love having you on, man. And of course, I'll put those links in the show notes. So if anyone wants just an easy way to just click through, that's how you can do that. Yeah, I always greatly appreciate having you on and I'm looking forward to having you on again. And, and of course, to all of the listeners, I appreciate you guys hanging out here with us as well. If you want to dig deeper and look into our stuff, if you want to get in touch with me or see the other episodes or all of the write-ups on our concepts, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That links off to everything. And of course, if you want to kick it up a gear, that's what our premium stuff is for. You can go to premium.bjjmentalmodels.com to check that out. First week is free, so you can try it out without any sort of risk or anything. What we offer there is a ton of premium audio series that go into a lot more depth than we talk about here, kind of like masterclass for jujitsu, I guess is how you could describe it. And also there's an amazing community and I'll also review your rolling footage and help kind of drive home some of the big picture concepts in terms of what you're fucking up when you spar. Because we both know you are. You're definitely fucking up. I'm positive, whoever you are that's listening, 99% of the time, you're not keeping your elbows in close enough. So fix that and then send me your footage. Anyway, that's the end of my rant. Malachi, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate having you on. I thought this was just an amazing conversation. Something that I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value out of. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I love it, man. Thank you so much for always having these awesome concepts to talk about. So... And thank you to everybody who listened for an hour and a half. You guys are awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks a lot, man. And yeah, to the listeners, thank you too for your time and attention. And we'll speak to you next week. 